Good morning, Disciples Church. Today's scripture is Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent as the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will, re <clears throat> and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you, so good to be with you. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosier. It's my privilege and my honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you today. And so if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We do want to wish a, uh, a special welcome um, for fathers. Thanks so much for being here. We're so grateful for you, for the role that you play in our lives. Um, thankful for earthly fathers. I say that, said this on Mother's Day as well, but I do mean it. Um, thankful for earthly fathers and, and spiritual fathers. Thankful for the role um, that we get to play in one another's lives. And so appreciative that you're here with us today. Well, we finished the book of Mark. Took us a year and a half, a uh, year and some change to get through that, but we finished the book of Mark. And so uh, as we come into this text this morning, what we thought it would be a good time to do is to take a hiatus um, between sermon series to focus on some of the things that we think are going to be pivotal in the life of Disciples Church. Several months ago, if you were with us, we had shared that as a young church that's desiring to mature and grow together, one of the things that we felt we needed to do was bring structure, uh, structure and organization to some of the things that we've been doing. In a very real sense, 
to this point in our life, we've just been responding very, very simply to what it is that God's been calling us to do and what he's led us to do and who he's brought us and all of those sorts of things. And so our heart in saying that we want to work on some of those structural and organizational elements is not that we would have formality for the sake of formality. Like that's not ultimately the purpose. The purpose isn't just simply to have structure for the sake of structure, but what, it's re- what really the purpose and the heart is behind it is that we would be able to effectively fellowship and minister together as a local church. So if you think about the way that the Bible describes the church and describes what it is that God does in the course of the life of believers who are gathered, you find all sorts of descriptions. You find things like the description of the body drawn together, that there are these individual pieces of the body that are all members of the same body. You find descriptions like the one you find in the book of John where Jesus, uh, Jesus is the root, he's the, the life source, he's the, he's the foundational point of everything for believers and we are We are the branches that grow out of him. And so in a very real sense, what we're looking to do through the course of the next couple weeks is talk about what that structure and organization looks like within the context of the church so that the vine that God is growing in our midst has a trellis on which to climb. So not just formality for the sake of formality, but a structure that supports and undergirds and draws together what it is that God is doing in this place. And so a couple of weeks ago, on the anniversary of our ability to gather once again after our our COVID break, we talked about the nature of the local church from Colossians chapter 3, that because of our old flesh having been crucified with Christ and the fact that he has now given us new life, the Spirit is now at work maturing us in Christian faith, growing us, disciplining us, correcting us, encouraging us. That the Father has now called us to live out a whole new set of actions that are born of new attitudes that He gives us. That our lives can no longer be dominated by anger or resentment or impurity, by dishonesty. But we are now marked by a whole new set of family traits. We're marked by compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience forgiveness, and above all else, love. And as we were defining that idea of love, we used the the old description given by Thomas Aquinas that we are to will the good of another. And in so doing, we are both to lay ourselves down, our own agenda, our own comfort, our own ego, our own opinions in some cases, and simultaneously that we are entering into the idea of being willing to do hard things with and for each other. That we're going to encourage each other and press into one another and, and even at times confront one another for the good of the other. Correct one another for the mutual benefit and encouragement of the body. And we ended that sermon by talking about the fact that all of the commands that are given in the New Testament to individual Christians necessitate a communal experience. There are no lone ranger Christians. It is not something that's intended to be lived alone and apart from relationship and apart from community and apart from the body that Christ has given us in this local expression. That there are all sorts of instructions and expectations that cannot be obeyed without the people of God interacting with each other on a deep and transformational level. And listen, that is the polar opposite of what many of our experiences have been in the modern church. 
the idea of deep and transformational community built around the gospel has been the opposite of many of our experience. And there's two primary reasons for that. The first is this, to a great extent, we have become victims of the digital age and the celebrity culture in which we live. That those attitudes and those, those worldviews dominate the broader culture and have seeped their way into the church over time. So here's what I mean, and there are good and bad things about this. At the push of a button, you can have access to some of the greatest Bible teachers and preachers in the world. And you can download sermons and apps and studies from world-class theologians and Bible communicators, and while there's all sorts of good that comes from those things and all sorts of all sorts of resources that we ought to avail ourselves of, it has also created a very consumeristic mindset, one that damages both pastors and congregations. And so for pastors, here's the struggle. Celebrity inherently brings with it unique temptations. It turns ministers of the gospel as slaves of Christ, shepherds of the flock, into household names. And the temptations that come along with that kind of notoriety can poison the human soul in a way that few can withstand. And so far too often, pastors fall into disqualifying sin. They hurt the name of Jesus Christ. They hurt the name of the church broadly. They hurt their congregations locally. And they damage the souls of those that are entrusted to their care. And likewise, that consumeristic culture damages individuals within the congregation because rather than the church being a place that declares unapologetically the sinful dysfunction of the human heart and the desperate need that we have for divine grace from a holy and loving God, it begins to function like a drive through coffee shop. A place where you can go where pastors act like spiritual baristas dispensing little shots of sage advice to help you power through your week. And so churches are tempted to exchange the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for kitschy slogans and generic fortune cookie wisdom that pacifies the human soul into a stupor. Believing it has experienced true transformational Christianity, but something that dissolves the moment heartache or difficulty touches it. And by extension, the people that sit under that sort of teaching learn to live vicariously through the spiritual experience of someone they don't know. And it would be like sitting in a world-class restaurant and being satisfied with the mere scent of a well-prepared steak. You cannot survive spiritually that way. See, our tendency naturally as humans is to put our focus and our attention and our hopes on the leaders, on other people, or on the programs of a particular church. And so when those individuals or when those structures fail to live up, our ex- live up to our expectations, we grow bitter and resentful. Ultimately, because we were looking to them to provide something that only God himself could provide. And that is why the declaration of the gospel being central to the church is the only thing that keeps the church alive. It is our confidence, it is our hope, it is our anchor, it is our rock. And as soon as we deviate from it, we lose our foundation 
We lose our authenticity. We lose our confidence. We lose our victory. So not only has the church been weakened by the unique cultural challenges that our era faces, but in addition, point two, that consumeristic mindset is fed when people experience very real hurt at the hands of fellow Christians. See, the truth is people have been sold, in many cases within the context of the church, have been sold a bill of goods, one that promises utopian communal worship experiences, only to discover upon entering into that congregation that the church is made up inherently of broken and hurting people, that the church was never intended to be a club for those who had their life together, but it was intended to be a hospital for those who are sick. And so people all around our region and all around our country and all around the world have walked away from church legitimately hurt and crestfallen. And because there is a proliferation of unhealthy churches, people have not been encouraged to work through their issues and to work alongside one another and are are instead incentivized to jump from one church to another. And all of these problems are possible because we have an incredibly superficial view of what the church is to be. That the worth of the church does not end in its teaching in the songs that we sing or the programs that we provide, but that there is inherently something incredibly deep and meaningful going on under the surface. That there are deep spiritual waters in which the Spirit is doing incredible and amazing things in the lives of people and in which far too often by virtue of our own superficiality we never get a picture into. But brothers and sisters, we want to be a church and associate with churches and ultimately be involved in planting churches that proclaim the good news of a rescuing and healing Savior. Churches that elevate not the name of a pastor or a program, but the gospel of grace demonstrated in a body of believers who are joined together covenantally committed to one another in gospel unity. And here's what I mean when I say gospel unity, realizing that yes, we are all in fact broken and sinful, but that we've been forgiven and redeemed by a loving God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that in being saved through him, we are now a chosen people, holy and beloved. But in order to properly operate as a church, there needs to be a level of purposeful, intentional commitment together. One where we have a common understanding and vocabulary in order to engage with one another well for the mission of the gospel in a lost and dying world. So then here's the question that faces us. What then is the antidote to a man-focused, vapid church experience that inevitably fails us? What's the hope for those who've been legitimately hurt and now feel guarded and nervous about the church? The answer we find is in the Christ-centered, covenantally committed fellowship of the gospel that is guaranteed to bear fruit. And listen, if you never get to the point 
of understanding the benefit of that commitment, whether that's here or at another gospel-proclaiming church, you will spend your life either sitting on the periphery, watching and criticizing the churches and Christians around you, or jumping from church to church, hoping to find one that meets a standard of your own design. And either of those solutions leaves you empty and missing out on incredible blessing that God would intend in your life. So understand, this is not about Disciples Church inherently, though it has all sorts of application for us. This is about understanding the role and the opportunity that's been extended to us by a loving God who intends so much good for our lives. So here's the question. By what standard and what example do we look to commit to one another within the context of the church, to partner with one another, to love one another? And here's the answer we find in Hebrews chapter 8. We look to the example of a faithful and loving God and the way that He patiently and long-sufferingly interacts with His broken but beloved people. So today is really the first half of a two-part sermon. This week, what we're going to do is take a step back. We're going to zoom out to look at the nature of our covenant-keeping God. What actually is a covenant, and how does it work in a New Testament context? And next week, we're going to zoom in on a micro level on the particularities of how this understanding will inform covenant membership at Disciples Church. Because in order to understand the basis and necessity of covenanting together, we need to understand the nature of our covenantal God. Now, I've used the word covenant a lot, so let's define that. I'm going to use a definition that I pulled from R.J. Utley. He wrote an interesting book on the New Testament, New Covenant in the New Testament, and here's what he says. He says, covenant is the means by which the one true God deals with his human creation. The concept of covenant, treaty, or agreement is crucial in understanding the biblical revelation. The tension between God's sovereignty and human free will are clearly seen in the concept of covenant. Covenants are based exclusively on God's character and actions. However, the very nature of covenant demands a response. In other words, covenant is the language of God in communicating with his people. A covenant is a commitment from God in which he himself is the maker of the promise, the guarantor of and collateral for the promise, and the final keeper of that promise. And let me just explain how this is different from contract, because in a a modern understanding of things, we would tend to use those words interchangeably. And so this is something that most often comes up within the context of weddings. And whenever I get the opportunity to officiate a wedding, I'll generally begin by addressing those that are gathered for the wedding by saying something like this. I'll say, what we're here to witness today is not a contract between two people, but rather a covenant with one another. A contract says, if you fulfill these responsibilities and these duties, I will then reciprocate and fulfill my side of the deal, and if not, I'm out. And what I point out in those weddings is to say this, if, if there was... If there was only contract at stake within the context of a wedding, there is nothing that is mutually honoring or romantic in an agreement like that. There'd be no reason to participate in an observance of that sort of ceremony. If if that's what was going on, we would all leave and find a better use of our Saturday afternoon. But then I'll say something like this, but throughout the remainder of this ceremony, you're going to hear words like unconditional, sacrificial, 
forsaking all others, and for life. Those are the words of covenant. A covenant says, I'm here no matter what. It's born of a love that says, I know there will be difficulties, but I'm not going anywhere. See, God never approaches his people with a contract. He doesn't barter and negotiate and try to come up with reasonable terms. No, he is, he is the one who comes in with language of covenant. He's the one who comes in with all of the promises and all of the expectations. He declares what it is he's going to do, and then he does it. And it is the means by which he chooses to communicate his, his eternal love to his people. And he lays down the expectations of what we as his covenant people are responsible to do. That's the idea that we're going to look at today. Namely, that God, by means of his own covenantal love, calls out a people to belong to him. And this passage is particularly appropriate because in it we see how God, through his initiating divine work, covenants together two distinct groups of people in time, both to himself and to one another. First Israel in the Mosaic Covenant and now the church in the New Covenant. And we see this beginning in verse 9. We see that God had called out a people to himself, that is national Israel, through the covenant with Moses in the Old Testament. And here's what that verse says. I made a covenant with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's a reference to Exodus chapter 19 through 24. It would be worth going back and reading those five chapters. They're not actually that long, and they're incredibly insightful in understanding what it is that the author of Hebrews references here. But here's, in a nutshell, what happens in Exodus 19 through 24. The covenant was given by God, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Within a New Testament expression, we often look at these old covenants and we just kind of dismiss them out of hand, but there was a lot of beauty in that text because in it, God was promising to the, to the Hebrew people that he would be their God. Think about that. The creator God of the universe, the God who stands outside of time, who spoke everything into motion, steps, in, steps into the lives of these broken people and he says, I am going to be your God not in a far off distant sense, but I am going to rule over you and I'm going to love you. You're going to be my covenant people. You're going to belong to me. My affection is set on you. My, my eyes are turned towards you. He was promising that he would be their God and that they would belong to him, that they would be treasured, that he was going to provide for their needs and that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a chosen nation. And in response, the people were instructed to listen to his voice, to honor him, to worship him, to obey him. And listen, when the God of the universe steps in and says, I'm going to set all my love and affection on you, and here's your response, it's going to be to honor me and love me and obey me. That is entirely a fair deal. It's more than fair. It's incredibly generous. And the people of Israel hear this invitation and their response was to say, yes, that's exactly what we want. We want that more than anything. We want this relationship. And so God gives them the Ten Commandments. And then he gives them another set of laws and he, that address their morality and the way that they were, in which they were to live and believe. He gave them the ceremonial law, which was the means by which they were going to interact with him and maintain a right vertical relationship with God. And he gave them civil law, which was going to dictate the means towards a right horizontal relationship to one another. 
And God said to them, obedience to these laws is the means by which people will know that you belong to me. It's what's going to set you apart, and it's the things by which you will receive my blessing and understand that that law was a gift. It was God's means of self-revelation, a, a picture of His holiness, of His love, of His worthship, which is where we get our word worship. It's understanding that He is actually worthy to receive all the honor and glory that we give Him. And it was a declaration of His sufficiency for them. He's saying to the Hebrew people, I'm enough for you. You don't need anything else. You don't need other gods. You don't need, you don't need other means by which to find your happiness. And it made sense to the people. It provided for their spiritual needs as they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. It was full of rich symbolism and meaning. But here's the question. If this old covenant was so wondrous and so good and so meaningful, why was there a need for the new covenant? Look at verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So here's what he's saying. In the beautiful sovereignty of God, he intentionally created that old covenant with limitations, shortcomings. And he did that to show the people their deepest need for a Savior. And so notice what these shortcomings are. Notice first, that old covenant provided no lasting forgiveness. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Just a couple chapters forward in your Bibles, and I'll read it for you. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? And notice that language. You're still aware of your sin even after atonement in those animal sacrifices had been made. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to mention it briefly here. Do you understand that under the Old Covenant, when you went to the temple on the Day of Atonement and the priest sacrificed an animal on your behalf, that every time that happened and you received that temporal forgiveness that you had to go back for year after year, it was a reminder of your continued failure. It was bloody evidence of the ways that you had not held up to the instruction that God had given. That an innocent animal had to give its life for you. And what's most brutal is that that sacrifice inherently couldn't accomplish everything that you needed for forgiveness. So you had to come back year after year this constant reminder of your sin. And so though it was, yes, beautiful in a sense, God's means of providing forgiveness, demonstrating His forgiveness, really, it was also a reminder of our failure. You never got to move on. Not only did it not provide lasting forgiveness, but number two, it provided no power for obedience. Look at verse 9. 
I'm going to make a covenant. This is God speaking. I'm going to make a covenant not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Why? For they did not continue in my covenant. See, the old covenant did not provide a a means that guaranteed its success in the lives and hearts of the people. So in the law being given to God's people, the people were made aware of its content. They were made responsible for its instructions. They were held accountable for its standards, but they were not empowered for the obedience it required. In other words, the law gave us an external standard. It revealed our sin, but it could not provide an internal stimulus. It could demand new actions, but it couldn't grant you new affections. It could alter your behavior but it couldn't furnish you with belief. And finally, number three, the old covenant was already limited and obsolete when it was given. Now, what do we mean by that idea of obsolete? Maybe you've had this experience in your life. Maybe you've at some point or another gone shopping for a car or a computer, and maybe for you, you're someone that's wired like me where the research Uh, that's necessary to figure out what you're going to purchase is actually more fun than the purchase itself. My wife always makes fun of this. I say, this is my contribution to our marriage. If you want something purchased, just let me know what it is and I will find you the best deal and I'll get the reviews and I'll make sure we get the right one, okay? That's my contribution to our marriage. But maybe you've had this experience. So you do all of this research on the kind of car that you're gonna purchase and you pick out exactly the color and exactly the trim package and you find a dealership and you figure out a price and you've done all the work or all the research and you purchase that car and you get it home, you drive it off the lot, and you get home only to realize that the manufacturer is releasing a whole new body style that year. What in the world, right? And we can make the same analogy to technology and all kinds of other things. The moment you've purchased it, it's obsolete. The obsolescence is built into the product. So why do I say that when the old covenant was was given, it was already limited and obsolete. Well, verses 8 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 8 is actually a quote from Jeremiah 31. So understand the prophet speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 600 years before Jesus Christ is born. Jeremiah writes this text, and what he says is, yes, this old covenant exists. Yes, this covenant that Israel is under is currently here. But understand, God is going to make a new and better covenant. He's coming with something that has even greater promises and even greater blessings. And in the words of the author of Hebrews in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So even though the new covenant had not been given, the old covenant was already obsolete by virtue of its promise. And likewise, and perhaps most meaningful to people like us, The Old Covenant was limited limited in, in the fact that it was only applicable to the national Israel. Which means if you're in this room and a Gentile, which you most likely are, none of it applied to you. The promise wasn't for you. See, ultimately the problem with the Old Covenant was that its success in the lives and hearts of God's people was not guaranteed. So the author of Hebrews here makes the case for the need for a new covenant. And now he's saying through Christ, God has instituted that new covenant. 
one without shortcomings, one without limitations. Now, notice how the new covenant is installed, that's installed by Jesus handles the shortcomings of the old covenant, because this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. Verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest And his point in saying that is he's saying he's so incredible, he's so amazing, he's so beautiful and so above it. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Do you remember the first problem of the old covenant? It didn't provide lasting forgiveness. The priests would get up, They'd go to the temple, they'd take the sacrificial animals, they'd slaughter them, they'd offer prayers to God to atone for the sins of the people. The priests were never in a position to sit down. Why? Because there was always atonement to be made. There were always more sins to be confessed. And the priests themselves, by virtue of the fact that they were mortal humans, were limited because those priests could die. They were mere men. And on the part of the people, the sacrificial system was a constant reminder of their failure. An innocent animal had to die. But when Jesus comes, everything changes. That he is both the great high priest and he is the perfect sacrifice. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A sacrifice that is so acceptable to God. So innocent, so undeserving of the punishment he received that God saw fit to accept his payment for all the sins of his elect people. Even those who had not yet been born or as of yet committed a sin. And in rising from the dead and ascending, Jesus showed himself to be that eternal high priest. One who would not die, who would not pass away. And as the mediator, Jesus answered the second deficiency of the Old Covenant, which is that the people lacked the power to obey. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he provided new life to his people. Note the author of Hebrews quoting from the prophet Jeremiah in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, which is a reference to the installation of the new covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That in his death and resurrection, what Jesus did was was remove your wicked heart of flesh and he gave you a new spiritual heart where instead of you trying to work and change your life from the outside in, trying to keep up and trying to remember all the rules with which you struggle, God sent His own Holy Spirit to apply the perfect life of Christ to you and to indwell you for the power for right living. He began to work faith into your heart, which is that seat of the emotions, the seat of the will, the center of your being, And he worked belief into your mind. He birthed new affections and new attitudes in you. And in so doing, you no longer just have a standard by which you're to live, but now you have the indwelling power and presence of Christ 
by which you're able to live it. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the guarantee of your final spiritual success. And so because all the work has been finished and all the penalty has been paid, the author says that Jesus, the great high priest, sits down. That there is nothing left to be done, no work left to be accomplished, no acceptance yet to be gained. It is finished. And what's the result of this new covenant being initiated? Verse 12, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, their sins, and I will remember their sins no more. No more temple visits. No more yearly reminder of your ongoing failures. No more sacrifice of an innocent animal. No more payment necessary for your acceptance. And that addressed the final shortcoming of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was made obsolete by the promise of the New Covenant. It was temporary. It wasn't intended to be permanent and eternal, and it was limited to national Israel. But notice what the author of Hebrews says in verse 10. He's now saying the same thing that he said to Old Testament Israel in the book of Exodus. He now says to those who know Christ by faith in verse 10, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The same God of the universe, the same Creator, the same one that man's hearts long to know, comes to us through Jesus Christ and says, I want to know you. And insert your own name in there. He says, I want to know you. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And it's reminiscent of what Paul said in Galatians 3.26. He said, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, And if you are Christ." then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The spiritual successors, the spiritual children, by virtue of the same covenant that God made with Abraham. That there is a lineage and a connection and a relationship that spiritual blessing now belongs to you as the church. See, the new covenant said God's people are no longer defined by their physical birth, but by their spiritual rebirth. And the new covenant is the eternal one, the one that has no end. And it's one that is open to all those who belong to Christ. Verse 6 of Hebrews 8, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises that God promised, guaranteed, and delivered on the new covenant. And Jesus, the great high priest, now sits as its mediator. In other words, the birth of the new covenant 
brought about the death of religion. And do you understand how significant and life-changing and world-changing that is? So Dick Lucas, a great old Anglican pastor, said it this way. He said that the way that we understand the book of Hebrews is to imagine a conversation between a Roman, a non-believing pagan Roman, and his Christian neighbor. Because the Romans who were fine with all kinds of religion hated Christianity. In fact, they referred to Christians as atheists. Very unusual language to refer to these people. And you can imagine, if you use Dick Lucas's worldview, how this happens. I mean, imagine this conversation between a pagan and his Christian neighbor. The Roman says to his Christian neighbor, oh, you have a new religion? Interesting. Tell me about it. Where is your temple? And the Christian responds, well, we have no temple. But God actually dwells in us as his temple. The Roman looks confused and responds, well, what is, it, what is it exactly that you sacrifice? And the Christian responds, well, in fact, we have no sacrifice at all. Jesus was our sacrifice for all time. Well, who then is your priest? And the Christian responds, well, Jesus is our priest, but the work is all done. And the neighbor says, well, I'll have to add that to my rotation of worship. And the Christian neighbor says, oh, no. There is no other name or entity by which God can be known than through Jesus. In the words of one author, the pagan Romans knew what we often forget, that Christianity was not a new religion. It was the anti-religion, something wholly different, where what God initiated, he completed where the means of salvation that was necessary for us to be saved from death and hell was provided by the self-same God without any help from us. Or in the words of John Owen, that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. See, the new covenant was better better because it brings salvation to the elect of Christ, better because it adopts us into a new family, better because it's not rooted in the blood of our forefathers, but rooted in the blood of Emmanuel, God with us, better because it not only includes blessing for the people of God, but because the Holy Spirit of God now indwells and empowers those people to obey. So do you understand, brother and sister, that we as members of the church universal, meaning all believers at all times in all places, and as a local church gathered in this place, exist as a direct result of what it was that God had established in his covenant with his chosen people. And that God has called us into covenant with him and by extension with one another as co-laborers and a royal priesthood. See, it is God at work in the covenant from beginning to end, from making the covenant to guaranteeing the covenant to providing the means of the covenant to mediating the covenant and in providing the source of power for us to believe and obey, God has guaranteed the success of his bride the church. 
And in so doing, he's defined the nature of the relationship. He's equipped us for that relationship through his spirit. And he's articulated the defining characteristics of how his covenant people ought to interact with one another. And the understanding of our covenant-keeping God forms the basis for the way that his people gathered together through the local church covenant together. to proclaim his gospel in both word and sacrament, to fellowship, to grow and attain Christian maturity, not only through what we say, but also in the way that we strive together to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, God, we thank you for a text that so beautifully expounds and explains the nature of who you are as the maker and keeper of covenants. God, that as we sang about earlier, regardless of our failure, our rejection, our disobedience, that your love remains true and firm and secure. We thank you for the old covenant, for the beauty of what it was that it demonstrated about who you are and about your relationship to mankind. We thank you that it revealed mostly our own sinfulness and our desire and need for a once and for all Savior. And God, we thank you for the beauty and the majesty of the new covenant, that you began the work, that you made the promise that you guaranteed the promise, that you laid down the collateral for the promise, that you completed the promise, and that you mediate the promise. And that in so doing, you give us a new and better promise, a promise of victory through Jesus Christ, where we are your people and you are our God, where victory over sin is guaranteed, where the establishment and the maintenance and the glorification of your church is guaranteed. And God, we thank you for how that trickles down then to us at this local level. God, help us to be open to what it means to be in relationship with a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and to consider what it is to minister alongside and with one another in a fallen and broken and increasingly dark world, to proclaim your goodness and the gospel of your grace and the salvation through Christ alone, that we would do that not not individually and not alone and not separated from one another, but hand in hand and arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder with one another, committing together to faithfully uphold your word and proclaim your gospel. And God, even that we would not be willing to be satisfied with doing that alone as a church here at Disciples, but that we would look for like-minded brothers and sisters in other congregations with with whom we can cast our lot and go to war against sin and darkness and evil, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. So God, we thank you that you are the guarantee. And God, we pray that we would trust you as we walk further and deeper into relationship with one another. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.